By the way, I want to let you know, Kathy is doing well. She is still in Waynesville. She's been with our grandson, Ethan, up there. And I'm not sure how this equal time thing is going to work out, because I want to be able to hold him, too, as I was able to this past week. I miss Kathy, but uh, she's helping out our daughter and son-in-law there, and so that makes it okay. Lord willing, she'll be back sometime this week. We are celebrating the Lord's Supper today, so I want us to get to that. But I want us to give our attention to God's Word, Joshua chapter 14, beginning with verse 6. Now, interesting today in the providence of God, tomorrow will be the 29th anniversary of my ordination of the gospel ministry. And this text from Joshua 14 is actually the first text I ever preached on in June of 1986. I was 19 years old, and if I knew as much now as I thought I did then, you'd be seeing something up here. I hope, as I've shared with a friend last night in a text message, I hope that my approach in dealing with this text has improved over the years, but there is no guarantee. But let's look together. Joshua chapter 14, beginning with verse 6. This is the word of God. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the hand, the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day. Eighty-five years old, I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him and gave him Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. May the Lord bless this reading of his word, because the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the word which, by the gospel, is preached to you. Amen. And so when I first preached this text back in June of 1986, my title was The Courage of Caleb. As I, through the years, have continued to get to know Caleb somewhat, though he is mentioned but in only a half dozen or a dozen places in the Bible, 
I've come to realize that it's not so much the courage of Caleb that is on display as it is his faith. After all, what is it that makes any of us who we are but the object of our faith? Because everyone has faith. Even the atheist who denies God has faith. It may well be in himself or herself or in something or someone. But everyone has faith. Everyone is trusting in something. For Caleb, it was a matter of trusting the Lord and believing the word that the Lord had given. And so as we look at this passage, one of the things that we realize is that faith, if we have it, will be in evidence. Not just because we say we have faith, but because of the life that we live. And so I've termed it like this. Faith can be tracked like a rabbit in the snow. Now, I know we're here in southwest Florida, and I'm talking about snow. But I think most all of you know what I mean. Snow, when it lays on the ground, makes possible for you to be able to see whatever traverses it, whether you're talking about a rabbit or a buffalo. And each critter leaves behind its own particular track. And so, yes, you can track a snow and the rabbit all the way to his hole. So, remember that faith is not merely something we profess, it's something that is in evidence. And Caleb's faith was in evidence in that, in as much as God had said that the land would be delivered to the Israelites, Caleb dared to believe God. Now, we remember at this point how that Moses sent spies into the land of promise before the Israelites actually arrived there. And you remember he picked representatives of each of the 12 tribes. Now, there's something of interest here in that Caleb represented the tribe of Judah. Yet, curiously, here in our text, we see that he is the son of Jephunneh and was a Kenizzite. The the Kenizzites were not Israelites. We know that they had been in the land a long time. And so this raises a curious question, just what was Caleb's lineage? Apparently, his father was not Jewish, was not an Israelite. And perhaps it is because of his mother that he is among the people of promise. We really don't know. But what we do know is that however it came about, as they were leaving Egypt, Caleb left with them. And it's because of his faith in God, not because of his own particular family's lineage, that he is counted among them. And so uh, Moses chose Caleb to represent the tribe of Judah. And, of course, they were representatives of each of the other tribes. They went in, they spied out the land, and they came back and said, this is my paraphrase, wow, it's really something over there. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. They got grapes bigger than you wouldn't believe. And it's really beautiful. Everybody agreed on that. That was a unanimous report. But then reports diverged. Ten representatives of the tribe said, but we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. The sons of Anakim were there. These were giants, much like the Nephilim that we read about in Genesis chapter 6, men of valor, men of great stature. The the Anakim were a, a large were large men. Goliath is a later descendant of them, just to give you an idea. So they literally felt like grasshoppers in their sight and said, there's too many of them and they're too big. We cannot take the land. You see, they took their eyes off God and they looked at their circumstances 
and their faith failed. But two, Joshua and Caleb brought in the minority report in good Presbyterian fashion. The full committee came back with its findings. The majority had their say. But it was Joshua and Caleb who said, you bet there's a bunch of people over there and they're big. Again, my paraphrase. But we will prevail against them because God said we could. Unfortunately, the majority prevailed, and God, in punishment for their unbelief, caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, literally for 38 years. And all that time, Caleb continued to trust. Moses had promised him a particular area of land, area of Hebron, um, an area that was known for being the headquarters of the anarchy, those giants. And so now fast forwarding to all these many years later, 45 years later, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and at least five years of, of battling in the promised land, Caleb comes up to Joshua and says, I just want to remind you, Moses said I could have Hebron and I want it. Perhaps the most formidable of all of the places to be taken. And yet at 85, this man believed God, who had said that your inheritance will consist of all the places where your foot will trod. So beware of the false prophets, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. What's he saying? Faith will be in evidence. You'll be able to track the faith of an individual over the course of life. Not that any of us can ever achieve perfection. There are going to be a lot of mistakes and a lot of uh, failures and regrets along that trail. But nevertheless, genuine faith will be borne out in evidence. And Caleb is a demonstration of that. We also know that faith is something that is grounded in God's past promises. But it's the assurance of future victory. You see, Caleb didn't believe in God's word because it had been delivered to him individually. This wasn't some something that he dreamed up on his own. This is God's word, which had been delivered to the children of Israel through Moses and had been publicly received and publicly affirmed. So what we believe is of importance because you can have faith in anything. I suppose you could... Uh, you could believe that uh, Coca-Cola could deliver you from COVID or cancer. That doesn't mean that it will. But to have faith in God means that we believe in his word that has been received and affirmed down through all of these long ages. And these past promises matter in the present. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Faith is, uh, is believing in God, even though we don't have the, 
the evidence before us physically to be able to see or touch or feel, hear, all of those things, and yet we believe. Caleb believed what God said. Proverbs 23.18 says, Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. We all affirm that. There was a funeral service here yesterday, beautiful service of worship. As many reflected upon the life of Alice Miller and what was very evident in that service, though I did not know her well, it was in, on clear display that here was a woman who trusted in God, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and wanted others to know about him too. We have a future and a hope. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. It's been said that you can live weeks without food. You can live several days without water. But you can't live three seconds without hope. Where is your hope today? Are you trusting in God's word? In the provision that he's made for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone lived a perfect life? Who alone died in your stead, suffering the very wrath of God? Are you trusting in him? Or is it something else? Wisdom would have us look to God. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. He said that to the Israelites when they again were experiencing God's chastening hand. And yet, to give them confidence, to know that the Lord had not forsaken them, that he had a purpose and a plan for them. God has never forsaken his people, even though his people repeatedly have forsaken him. He is faithful. There is no other worthy object of our trust. We also see that faith is just that, trust in God. But faith doesn't presume upon God or his kindness. If you'll note, Caleb confidently receives his inheritance, reminding Joshua that it is his. And he remembers how that the Lord had made the promise that surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance. And he affirms that the Lord had kept him alive, just as he said, these 45 years since that word had been spoken. And he affirms his age, 85. Some of you are thinking, well, I'd really like to serve the Lord, but I'm getting along in years. Here's a man at 85 who's ready to say, let's go face the Anakim. I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. He affirms his willingness to go forth to war, to receive that hill country. But he says this at the end of verse 12. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. It may be. It's not that Caleb has doubt there. It's simply that he doesn't presume. His faith is firmly fixed in God, and he knows that that hope will not disappoint. But he also, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they were facing the fiery furnace because they refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol, when they were charged 
to reject the Lord and worship the idol. They said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You know, reading this in Sunday school, I was under the impression of, you know, these guys were able to be courageous because they knew that God was going to deliver them. But at the moment that they spoke these words, they had no assurance of that. They didn't know that they would be immediately delivered from the fiery furnace, but it didn't matter to them. They knew that God was able to deliver them, but even if he didn't, they would not bow before that idol. We know that God is able to deliver us from our immediate circumstances, whether we're facing COVID or cancer or a heart condition or some other debilitating circumstance. We know that God is able to deliver us, but people of faith... People of real faith are able to say, regardless of whether God delivers me of this immediate crisis, I know that my future is secure. I know that Jesus has died for my sins, and I know that I have a home in heaven. That's faith. Faith enables ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And a familiar example of this came to my mind. Perhaps I've shared it with you before, but... uh, And it's been often told. But I think of a man named Edward Kimball. Maybe you don't know who Edward Kimball is. He was a Sunday school teacher in Chicago back in the 1800s. And he had a Sunday school class. And when he was buying a pair of shoes one day, he encountered a young man who needed to be in his Sunday school class who was just as lost as he could be. And Edward Kimball befriended him and invited that young man to his class. And Dwight L. Moody agreed and he came. And he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was greatly used of God as an evangelist in the 19th century. Dwight L. Moody preached all over this country. He was even invited to England. And as a result of preaching there, a man by the name of Frederick B. Meyer, F.B. Meyer, came to a renewed relationship with Christ, even though he was already a Christian. He came to follow the Lord more closely. F.B. Meyer was used of God to preach boldly, not only in England, but he came to the United States. And as he preached here, a man was swept up in his ministry who also knew the Lord, J. Wilbur Chapman. Because of Meyer's preaching, came to organize a Christian movement, and he brought in as his assistant a professional baseball player by the name of Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday worked with F.B. Meyer for a while before he himself became a preacher. And in 1918, he preached in Charlotte, North Carolina, and there was a great response. And a group of men there, because of Sunday's preaching, decided that they would continue to meet together and pray that God would start a mighty movement and raise up someone who would touch the world for Christ. And as a result of that gathering in 1934, they invited a man by the name of Mordecai Ham to a series of evangelistic messages. And Mordecai Ham came and preached in 1934. And as he was preaching on one particular day, a young 16-year-old boy who was sitting in the choir surrendered his life to Christ and his name was Billy Graham. 
Who in the world is Edward Kimball? Just a man who trusted God, who faithfully served the Lord in the harvest field in which the Lord had placed him, believing that his task was to share Christ with all and any. And so I encourage you today, remember who you are. Remember whose you are. Remember that God has called us to faith, not to live by sight, but to live by faith. With all the discouragement that we face, remember that God has for you a future and a hope. And I call upon you to believe Him and to trust in Him and to know that Jesus is worthy of your faith. And so may the faith of one person remind us that God has promised for us all eternity in Jesus Christ. That's our hope. And that hope will never disappoint. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you now as we come to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ, reminded that he has done everything necessary for us to rescue us from our sin and from the eternity of wrath that we deserve. Lord, bless us that we may now come humbly and repenting, trusting, in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so as we come to the table of the Lord Jesus, I want to remind you, this is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a Presbyterian table. This is the Lord's table. So right up front, I want to make clear that anyone today who is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, who has made a public declaration of that faith, you are welcome at this table of our Lord Jesus also want to remind you as believers that it's important that we all come in repentance, that we come transparently, acknowledging our sin and our guilt, not trying to manage it, but repenting of it so that we may come in a worthy manner. And so I say those things to you as I place before you this privilege of partaking of the Lord's Supper. I want to remind you that these elements are but representatives of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. And yet, we do believe that Christ is present in this supper by means of the Holy Spirit himself. So that we experience Christ inasmuch as we partake of these elements by faith. Remember, looking beyond what we can see and taste to the one that these elements represent. And insofar as we do that, may we all together experience Christ in a manner that would not be possible apart from doing what the Lord Jesus said to do in remembrance of him. For the Apostle Paul said, For I received that which was delivered to me, that on the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner after the supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the bread and for the cup. And we pray now, O oh Lord, as these elements are passed and as we receive them, that we may find that these ordinary elements are blessed of you for an extraordinary purpose as we look beyond them to the one they represent, as we think of the body of the Lord Jesus sacrificed for us on the cross, and as we think of his blood shed for us there. O oh, Father, Encourage us and strengthen us, we pray, and accept our thanks for this privilege.
in our beloved Christ Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. I'll ask our elders to come at this time. And again, just reminding us that the Lord Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, as we have just done in his name, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. So as the trays are passed, I would ask you that you take the elements in turn and hold them until everyone is served. And then we will all eat and drink at the same time. In remembrance of him. This morning, when I came in, I said to Patrick, do you want me to do the bread or do you want me to do the cup? They said, why don't you do the cup? I'll do the bread. And, and so here we are using that language, the cup. And that language is rooted in the Old Testament. Jeremiah the prophet, Isaiah the prophet, talked about the cup. But in Jeremiah and Isaiah, it was the cup of God's wrath. 
Which is why Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, said, Lord, can we think of another way other than having me drink to the dregs this cup of your wrath? But our Lord Jesus, the night of his betrayal, took the cup and he said, this cup, this cup, is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat of my body and drink of this cup, drink of my blood, you shall forth my death until I come again. Today, together, we're not going to drink from the cup of God's wrath. Jesus did that once for all. Today, we drink the cup of the new covenant in his blood. Again, I'd ask that you hold the elements so that we could partake together.
Jesus. We drink of this cup, not the cup of, of the wrath of the Father. No, we drink the cup of the new covenant because you yourself drank to the dregs that cup, the cup of wrath. This today is the cup of blessing. Drink all of you of it. The scriptures teach that after they had taken the Lord's Supper, the disciples then sang a hymn and departed. Let's conclude our time together here today as we stand and sing together. you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up unto you his countenance and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. And everyone said together, Amen. Amen.